This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your host for an hour of news and information relating to mental health. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, this is where you'll hear about it first, without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and with the goal of reducing the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. This is also where you'll hear explanations of reports about research into the causes and treatments of mental illness, uh, but with the benefit of behind-the-scenes information about what is behind the sound bites and the headlines that you hear about. And we hope to debunk and demystify a lot of the myths and misconceptions about mental illness and the potential treatments for it. As always, welcoming your feedback, and uh, you can send those questions and comments to me about your mental health or that of someone close to you, or your questions and comments about anything that I've discussed on tonight's show or a previous show to this email address, Dr. Scott, spelled D-R-S-C-O-T, at americaswebradio.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-C-A-S-W-E-B-R-A-D-I-O.com. Now, be patient with me if you have sent me an email the past couple of weeks haven't had access to that email account as yet, but I expect to soon. So uh, be assured that if you send me a message, I'll get back to you soon. Now, as far as what is a leading topic of tonight's show, I found a great article to go over with you having to do with seven unnecessary causes of stress and how to avoid them. That's right, you can actually conceptualize of stress as being unnecessary and take active steps in order to avoid it. Uh, now, no one said this is going to be easy. That's why I made a point of saying these are active steps that you can and need to take in order to avoid stress. But it's just important to conceptualize that stress is not something that uh, needs to be seen as inevitable. So let's get to work analyzing and identifying these avoidable causes of unnecessary stress. Now, number one, rehashing stressful situations. Playing out a stressful situation in your mind over and over again doesn't do you any good and could actually cause you to relive the stress you've already experienced. The brain can't tell the difference between what we are thinking about and what is really happening. So if we are reliving or dwelling on something negative that happened in the past, we will re-experience a stress response in our bodies. In order to overcome this bad habit, change the way we think about the situation. It's really hard to stop thinking about something. It's easier to replace that thought with a different thought. And how about making affirmations about the situation by concentrating 
on more positive thoughts like I am healthy and well, my immune system is strong, and I move forward confidently into the future. These are just examples. Uh, you can make up some positive affirmations of your own that are more specific to your individual situation, but working on this in this manner can help stop the never-ending cycle of negative thinking. It sounds kind of corny to some people I know, but in reality, you definitely can reduce your stress by replacing recurring negative thoughts with more positive thoughts. Taking time to medicate, to, sorry, to meditate, uh, how's that for a Freudian slip, folks? Taking time to meditate is often very helpful. Concentrating on your breathing while thinking I am on the inhale and at peace on the exhale can also help stop the stress response in its tracks. And I'll add some specific instructions to that if you especially concentrate on making your breathing very long, slow, deep breaths in through the nose and out through the mouth. And again, on the uh, inhale, thinking I am, as you breathe in very deeply and slowly through the nose, and then as you exhale very deeply and slowly, you think at peace. All right, number two is worst case scenario thinking. This is a very common, unnecessary, and avoidable cause of stress. Focusing on the possible negative outcome of a situation, such as how a date will go, or whether your new boss will like you, only projects negative thoughts into the future. We worry about these things when we don't really know what is going to happen. Why suffer twice? One way to combat worst-case scenario thinking is to consider whether the stressor is realistic and ask yourself whether it is something that will bother you one or two months in the future. Sometimes when you ask yourself those questions, you start seeing clearly that this is really not that big a deal and that it's something you can actually handle. Another way to avoid worst-case scenario thinking is to stay in the present. For example, while completing daily tasks, even simple mundane things, such as, for example, washing the dishes, you can take the time to experience the activity, such as, in the case of the dishes, the smell of the soap, the feel of the water, or the way the light hits the bubbles. It sounds silly to use this one example, but the point is, the more you can get lost in stuff like that, the more it keeps you from dwelling on the past or worrying too much about the future, stay in the present. This is the key concept behind the idea of mindfulness. You're in the moment. You're in the present. You're concentrating on what's going on. You're not dwelling on things from the past that won't do you any good. You're not worrying about what hasn't happened yet, which also isn't going to help. All right, and our third unnecessary avoidable cause of stress is procrastination. Everyone procrastinates for different reasons, but in many cases, people put things off because they feel overwhelmed by or scared of what they need to do. This can create frustration and stress. 
So come up with a plan to tackle this big project that you've been putting off in stages, rather than thinking you have to do it all at once if you start it at all. Set a long-term goal and then set smaller goals to reach it. When you do something in small, bite-sized pieces, it allows you to get a sense of accomplishment and creates positive reinforcements that motivate you to continue. This is reminiscent of the old expression, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? The elephant being a metaphor for this huge task or bunches of tasks that you're, you feel stressed and overwhelmed by, and therefore you procrastinate it, and therefore that increases your stress. So if you just conceptualize, hey, I'm just going to do a little bit at a time, and eventually it'll get done, it makes it easier to get started and uh, also reduces your stress by seeing that you are making some progress. All right, move on to number four, unnecessary avoidable cause of stress. That's being late. There are many reasons for being late, some of which are simply out of your control. But other reasons for tardiness may include being afraid to go somewhere or saying yes to things when you really don't have the time. This can cause feelings of anger and stress, along with the stress you already have about being late. If a lack of time is one of the reasons you are often late, one, uh, one suggestion is to frequently ask yourself whether an event or obligation will fit into your schedule, and also know when to turn an invitation down. But when the cause of being late is a missed alarm clock, heavy traffic, or misplaced keys. It's important to understand that these circumstances are out of your control and that you only have the ability to choose how you react. So instead of beating yourself up about being late, learn to let go and focus on the positive rather than on the negative. A person's attitude can influence whether or not a situation or emotion is stressful. On the other hand, if these issues come up on a frequent or regular basis and seem to be in some ways almost habitual, then start to adopt more uh, positive habits that will help you avoid these situations. Keep your keys in the same place all the time, such as uh, a drawer, a hook, a little basket on top of a table, Set your alarm a little bit earlier to account for unexpected obstacles along the way on, on your trip, such as traffic or construction or the like. Number five on our unnecessary and avoidable list of stressful situations, lurking or oversharing on social media. <clears throat> it has been well documented that there are some people who experience so-called Facebook depression. When you're overlurking on social media, this means you're comparing yourself to others, which causes stress. You're grading your self-worth and self-esteem based on what you see from other people, not on your own benchmarks for success and happiness. Oversharing on social media can also make us very vulnerable, making us more likely to get hurt. You should really have people earn your trust and respect before 
you open up and share. You can avoid this stressor by setting personal boundaries and only allowing yourself a certain amount of time each day to check social media. There are some people who have deleted their accounts because they felt that it caused more stress rather than that they enjoyed keeping in touch with people. And for you, that may or may not be the right decision for you, but just to let you know that if that might seem too extreme, many people have made that decision and have not looked back. All right, well, we're, we've got two more left in our list of the seven unnecessary causes of stress and how to avoid them. We'll be right back to finish that up and have more mental health-related news after we take our first commercial break here on Psychiatry Today on America's Web Radio. We'll be right back. Spring is in the air, literally. So follow Sniffles to Atlanta Center for Breathing Easy. Weeds, spores, grass, pollen. Airborne allergen levels are through the roof, putting your allergies into overdrive. It's time to followsniffles.com. Follow me and breathe easy. End your annual ritual of taking medication to alleviate facial pressure, facial pain, congestion, and headaches by treating the problem, not the symptom. Balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy. Back to work the next day. FollowSniffles.com. Follow me and breathe easy. Your severe sinus and nasal symptoms gone once and for all. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Call us at 404-591-9100. That's 404-591-9100. Follow me and breathe easy. FollowSniffles.com. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your host for the weekly hour of mental health-related news. And this show is airing for the first time on Wednesday evening, April 16, 2014, but of course is available for playback anytime at your convenience on America's Webradio.com. And also, the podcast is available on iTunes, and thank you so much for all of you loyal listeners to iTunes uh, for Psychiatry Today. <clears throat> and we're talking about seven unnecessary causes of stress and how to avoid them. And we're up to number six, clutter in your home or office. Clutter is a representation of how you're feeling and what's going on in your own life. So it's no wonder that a messy room or a cluttered office can make us feel stressed. Decluttering one step at a time is very useful and very helpful. This is like what we talked about in step number three about procrastination. The big project, uh, take it one small step at a time. And nowhere is it more important to apply that method than to decluttering. 
in order to avoid feeling overwhelmed. For example, just start with one drawer for 20 or 30 minutes at a time, then take a break, then go back to avoid feeling overwhelmed. Another reason some people may let clutter take over is because they don't know what to do with the space. Visualize what you want the space to look like. That will help motivate you as well. And if you're having trouble letting go of something, ask yourself two questions about it. One, do I love this? And two, do I use this? If you haven't used something in about a year, it's probably time to get rid of it. And last but not least, number seven on our list of unnecessary stresses and how to avoid them, worrying about money you've already spent. Thinking about money you've already spent is a form of dwelling on the past. Continuously turning your spending habits over in your mind will only cause you more stress in the moment. You can't unspend the money. To avoid this stressor, it's important to focus on the present and the things that we can control such as the financial decisions we will make in the future. Concentrate on making better decisions going forward instead of dwelling on the ones you've made in the past and can't undo. You can help yourself spend money more responsibly by understanding that money doesn't buy happiness by choosing to socialize with friends rather than going out and spending money you don't have or by removing your credit cards from your wallet or purse so you aren't tempted to spend. All right, well, I hope that was helpful. Again, seven unnecessary causes of stress and how to avoid them. Next up on tonight's show, I have a couple of articles related to being able to think better and more clearly and preserve your memory. First one more directly addresses that issue. It's about exercising away cognitive impairment. Now, cognitive and cognition, that refers to mental functions like thinking, attention, concentration, and memory. Aerobic exercise can promote not only healthy weight loss and bone health, New research shows that it could also help maintain brain volume and fight cognitive decline. Women between 70 and 80 years old participated in a study that measured the effects of exercise on the volume of the hippocampus, which is an area of the brain associated with memory. It's actually a very small structure in the temporal lobe that is very important for retaining and recalling information. Researchers found that aerobic exercise resulted in an increased volume of this small structure. The aerobic exercise, running for example, is meant to improve cardiovascular fitness. Women assigned to resistance training and to balance and tone exercises did not show similar increases. In other words, it's exercise that gets the blood pumping and moving, gets the heart going, is what does the trick. So biking, jogging, running, even fast walking, swimming. 
mild cognitive impairment, which is cognitive decline beyond that which comes with aging, is a risk, a risk factor for going on to develop dementia. Now, this study looked at whether aerobic and resistance exercise can prevent mild cognitive impairment from becoming worse. Researchers recruited 86 women between the ages of 70 and 80 years with probable mild cognitive impairment. Before the study began, each woman's verbal memory and learning were assessed. Some of the participants also underwent an MRI scan of the brain to determine hippocampus volume. The hippocampus is a part of the brain that is responsible for memory creation and storage. The participants were assigned to a twice-weekly exercise program involving either aerobics training, resistance training, or balance and tone training. The classes lasted for 60 minutes and included a 10-minute warm-up and a 10-minute cool-down. After six months of the exercise training, participants underwent another MRI and cognitive testing. Compliance, or the percentage of classes attended, was highest in their aerobic training group at 60%. The researchers found that compared with the balance and tone training group, the aerobic training group experienced significant increases in total hippocampal volume. However, the researchers also discovered that increased volume in the left hippocampus was tied to poorer performance on verbal memory tests. For those of you who are interested in looking at the study more closely, it was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine on April the 8th. All right, so get out there and get some aerobic exercise going. And that's going to increase the volume of the hippocampus in your brain, and that in turn will translate into less cognitive decline, better cognitive functioning, especially better memory. It has already been known from previous research that aerobic exercise, which increases the flow of blood in the brain, increases the production of proteins in the brain circulation that are involved in encoding information into memory. And now we'll take a look at a very common beverage which improves memory and a new study that shows how. A new study published in the journal Psychopharmacology finds another reason to enjoy tea time. Green tea can help improve the brain's cognitive functions. The study suggests that green tea could be helpful in treating cognitive impairments, even those caused by dementia. Green tea is made from unoxidized leaves, and it is high in antioxidants. Previous studies have also found a link between green tea and cognition, but the exact mechanisms that may be causing these effects have not been identified until now. In the study, 12 healthy volunteers received a milk whey-based soft drink containing either 27.5 grams of green tea extract or the same drink without green tea as a control group. As the participants performed several tasks that involved working memory, 
Magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, was used to measure their brain activity. Participants who drank the green tea extract displayed increased connectivity between a structure called the right superior parietal lobe and the frontal cortex of the brain. This activity correlated with improved performance on working memory tasks. The study shows that green tea extract enhances this functional connectivity between the parietal to the frontal cortex during working memory processing, and that this effect on connectivity was related to the green tea-induced improvement in cognitive performance. And according to the study authors, they feel this provides the first insights into the neural effect of green tea on improving working memory processing, suggesting a mechanism as to these interregional brain connections. And because green tea appears to increase connectivity between these regions during working memory processing, they feel it would be worthwhile to test green tea's efficacy in treating disorders involving cognitive impairments, such as dementia. I agree. I think it's high time that it be properly tested. For many years, ginkgo biloba has been touted as something that would be helpful, and study after study has not found a single benefit of it. Time to give green tea its chance. Acknowledging that the study had some limitations, the researchers said that compared with the imaging results, there was no significant connection found between green tea consumption and task performance. In addition, the subjects didn't consume a pure green tea extract, so other components, such as caffeine, may have had some impact on participants' cognitive performance. The article doesn't mention it, but another fairly obvious limitation is the very small sample size, 12 healthy subjects. But still, uh, the design was very valid, I think, in terms of giving a result that shows there is some benefit of the green tea. And, of course, a much larger study, maybe with pure extracts, would be more definitive. Uh, but a very positive, good preliminary result for green tea helping keep the mind sharp. Now, we're going to we're coming up to our next commercial break, so I think I'll hold off on starting the next subject till then. Uh, but in the next segment, we're going to be turning our attention to another extremely common beverage, but this one has nothing but very unhealthy consequences, even deadly ones. And that's what we're going to be going over when we come back from our next commercial break, especially for women. And you're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Here on America's Web Radio, we'll be right back. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. 
Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your host here on the show with one hour every Wednesday of informative mental health related news. Next up on tonight's show, deadly consequences of heavy drinking are greater for women. Many people like to relax after work with a drink or two. But for women, having a few too many can be an extremely dangerous thing. Women were more likely to die from alcohol consumption than men, according to researchers' reports in a new analysis that looked at several other studies. The more alcohol a woman drinks, the greater her risk for death. About 4% of all deaths in the world are due to alcohol, But while men are known to be the big consumers of alcohol, women appear to be more likely to die from drinking. Researchers conducted an online analysis of studies on alcohol consumption and death. They used data from 24 studies, which included almost 2.5 million participants, of which over 120,000 died. The studies followed the participants for anywhere from 4 to 23 years. All participants were 18 years of age or older. Researchers found that females had a 7% greater risk for all-cause mortality or death caused by drinking than men. And this was particularly true for women who drank heavily. Moderate drinking, by the way, for a woman is up to one serving a day. A serving is a 12-ounce beer or a 5-ounce glass of wine or an ounce and a half liquor shot um, in a mixed drink or by itself. Now, while men and women drink alcohol in lesser amounts, their risk for death from alcohol was similar. But when women drank more heavily, they were at greater risk. Researchers compared heavy alcohol consumption of 75 grams per day, 90 grams per day, and 100 grams per day. Women had a greater risk of death than men for all these amounts. Compared to men, women had more than twice the risk of dying when they consumed 100 grams per day. Now, different countries define standard drinks in different ways. And I just described to you a typical standard serving in terms of 
ounces of alcohol, but if we're thinking in terms of grams, a typical drink in the United States has about 14 grams of alcohol. So again, looking at these amounts, 75, 90, and 100, women have a greater risk of death at all three amounts and more than twice the risk of dying when they're at 100 grams a day. The study's authors suggest there are inherent biological differences that make drinking alcohol riskier for women than men. For example, women have a lower body water content, so alcohol is less diluted when they drink. Women also have lower levels of alcohol dehydrogenase, which is an enzyme in the stomach that breaks down alcohol. The, according to the authors, the study suggested that female drinkers, particularly heavy drinkers, should moderate or completely reduce their level of consumption to have a health benefit. The, the authors also wrote, in order to reduce excessive alcohol consumption for women, some effective interventions are needed. Supportive counseling and educational sessions have contributed to help women reduce their alcohol consumption. It should be recommended and emphasized in public policy to provide psychological and educational intervention programs to female heavy drinkers. This study was published online ahead of print on March the 10th in the Journal of Women's Health. Well, you have right there an extremely cautionary tale for women who like to have some drinks now and again. Uh, a significantly increased risk of mortality from alcohol use, and that uh, goes up considerably the more they have. Let's turn our attention to a veterans and military mental health update. Regular and long-time listeners will know that I like to focus on the mental health of our soldiers and seamen and airmen and Marines. Because I think until recent years, not enough attention was paid to these issues. Now, <clears throat> a recent study shows that brain injuries are tied to post-traumatic stress disorder in Marines. Active duty Marines who suffer a traumatic brain injury face significantly higher risk of post-traumatic stress disorder, according to this new study. Other factors that raise the risk include severe pre-deployment symptoms of post-traumatic stress and high combat intensity. But even after taking those factors and past brain injury into account, the study authors concluded that a new traumatic brain injury during a veteran's most recent deployment was the strongest predictor of PTSD symptoms after the deployment. The study was published in Journal of the AMA Psychiatry at the end of last year. Each year, as many as 1.7 million Americans sustains a traumatic brain injury, which is why we can learn a lot from studying the effects of these injuries on our military. A traumatic brain injury occurs when the head violently impacts another object 
or the other way around, or an object penetrates the skull. War-related traumatic brain injuries are very common. The use of improvised explosive devices, or IEDs, rocket-propelled grenades, and landmines in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars are the main contributors to deployment-related traumatic brain injuries today. More than half are caused by IEDs. Previous research has suggested that experiencing a traumatic brain injury increases the risk of PTSD. The disorder can occur after someone experiences a traumatic event. Such events put the body and mind in a high alert state because you feel that you or someone else is in danger. For some people, the stress related to the traumatic event doesn't go away. They may relive the event over and over again, or they may avoid people or situations that remind them of the event. They may also feel jittery and always on alert. Many people with traumatic brain injury also report having symptoms of PTSD. It's been unclear, however, whether the experience leading up to the injury caused the post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms or if the injury itself caused an increase in PTSD symptoms. The data came from a larger study following Marines over time. The current study looked at June 2008 to May 2012. The over 1,600 Marines included in the study conducted interviews one month before a seven-month deployment to Iraq or Afghanistan and a second interview three to six months after returning home. Before deployment, about 57% of the Marines reported having a previous traumatic brain injury. Of that high number of Marines with a previous brain injury being redeployed, it's likely that most of these Marines requested redeployment even though they had experienced a previous brain injury. During deployment, nearly 20% of the Marines experienced a new traumatic brain injury. Most of these injuries, 87%, were classified as mild. Of the 267 Marines who reported post-traumatic amnesia, for the majority, the amnesia lasted less than 24 hours. Most of those who lost consciousness due to their injury did so for less than 30 minutes. The researchers found that pre-deployment PTSD symptoms and high combat intensity slightly increased the risk of post-deployment PTSD. But mild traumatic brain injury increased the risk of PTSD by 23%. Meanwhile, a moderate to severe traumatic brain injury upped the odds of PTSD by 71%. For Marines who had less severe pre-deployment PTSD symptoms, a traumatic brain injury nearly doubled the risk of PTSD. 
When you're in combat, it's good to be on alert. When you come home, if you're not exposed to an ongoing threat, stress symptoms should get milder over time. But it makes sense that if you have a brain injury, it may be harder to recover because the brain may continue to feel like there is an ongoing threat. It's important for veterans coming home from war with a traumatic brain injury to know that they are at an increased risk of post-traumatic stress disorder and that it's important to seek help if they need it. It's important to use Veterans Administration care for any service-related injury or disability so that veterans can have access to ongoing care. I'm well aware that Veterans Administration's facilities don't always have the best reputation when it comes to mental health-related care, including the main one here in the Atlanta, Georgia area. However, for better or for worse, our veterans are entitled to care in these facilities, and there are specialty clinics set up to care for those who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder and it is definitely treatment that they should avail themselves of. All right, well, we're going to take our next commercial break before we get into some other topics here on Psychiatry Today, your one hour of mental health news here on America's Web Radio, and uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. Solution Providers, are you aware of the Institute for Healthcare Consumerism's multiple marketing platforms? You're invited to get a little closer to IHC with our Solution Provider Membership Marketing Program. Through IHC's exclusive Solution Provider Membership, your business gets an all-access pass to engaging your prospects. This membership embeds your business within the Institute, which immediately aligns your company, its solutions, and your key executives with the nationally credible IHC brand and shows your support of the healthcare consumerism movement as a market-wide solution. And that's just the beginning. Contact IHC's Managing Director Brent Macy today at bmacy at the IHCC.com. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF 
A nonprofit organization is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, Dr. Scott Bay, with you. Next up on tonight's show, an interesting article about how men have a problem with their female partner's success. A study suggests that men don't enjoy their wives' or girlfriends' victories. Men's self-esteem apparently is so fragile that it can take a beating if their wives do well, while women's egos are not as affected by their partner's victories. Even when the woman is successful at something her man is not really engaged in, say, hosting a party, husbands feel personally threatened, according to a study from the American Psychiatric Association, which also found that a woman's success could alter men's perception about their romantic relationship in the future. Really? Are women's egos that fragile? Well, the research was published late last year in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. The details proved to be more counterintuitive. For example, the five different experiments in this study examined not just heterosexual couples in the United States, but also those in the Netherlands, which often serves as a model of gender equity, and revealed little difference in the way men felt about their partner's success. Dutch men may see more successful women around them and have more females on their corporate boards and in their government, but they still feel a bit smaller when their wives or significant others do well. And interestingly, the men subconsciously felt worse about themselves whenever their romantic partners scored a win, no matter if they were competing in that area or not. That is, a man doesn't just feel worse about himself when he's shooting for the same goal, he feels worse whenever his woman succeeds, and this is a woman he likes. It makes sense that a man might feel threatened if his girlfriend outperforms him in something they're doing together such as trying to lose weight, according to the study's lead author. But this research found evidence that men automatically interpret a partner's success as their own failure, even when they're not in direct competition. One of the ways the researchers tested this theory included giving couples what they called a test of problem-solving and social intelligence. They told participants that their partners had either scored in the top or bottom 12% of all people who took the test. This news did not affect the way the participants said they felt. However, in a subsequent test of implicit self-esteem, which measured how they actually felt, a different story emerged. 
Men who believed their partner aced the test exhibited significantly lower subconscious self-esteem than men who believed their partner had flunked. This was true even though the men had no idea how they had done in the test. Incidentally, the test for subconscious self-esteem measures what words people associate with the word me. If they associate it more with positive words, such as good or great, their subconscious self-esteem is deemed high. If they associate me more quickly with pejorative words, it's low. If you're curious about how you are affected by your mate's victories, you might like to try it after you've celebrated one with them. After repeating the experiments in the Netherlands and getting the same results, the researchers did two more tests, this time online among people who were not Dutch or college students. And by the college students, that what's meant by that is, for better or for worse, they are the most common research subjects since researchers are usually doing these studies in university settings. More than 650 United States participants, 284 of whom were men, were asked to think about a time when their partner had succeeded or failed. It was scientific deja vu. The men felt bad when their wives beat them at something, but they also subconsciously lost confidence when their wives got any wins. Women's self-esteem was not affected either way. Now, why is it that there's this difference between men and women? The researchers offered several theories. Men are more competitive than women generally, which makes sense, except that in many of these areas, they weren't actually competing. So men may just be really competitive. Another is that men may feel they have to be more successful to hold on to their partners, and women may be guilty of feeding into this, at least partially, according to the researchers. Women do indeed feel more satisfied with their relationship when they think about a partner's success compared to when they think about a partner's failure. Or it may be that cultural pressures still run deep and they're subconsciously conforming to old-school partnership models of the male provider and devoted dependent woman he has rescued or is supporting. Another explanation could have to do with the fact that women tend to be more communal, so they look for reasons to connect with other people, while men look for differences. One possibility to test in future research is that men are more likely than women to focus on dissimilarity, and women are more likely than men to focus on similarity. This would be consistent with previous findings that women are more concerned with communal behavior and with smoothing social interactions than men are. Regardless of what is driving their low self-esteem, men's bruised egos can have lasting effects on relationships. 
subconscious feelings of low self-worth affect behavior and may make the men feel less optimistic about the relationship. Previous studies have shown that men whose wives earn more than they do are more likely to cheat, for example. On the other hand, the authors also say that while men subconsciously felt smaller by their partner's successes, they usually have the cognitive wherewithal to get over it. That's why they don't report feeling any worse when their partners do well. Plus, having a wife who is successful has its advantages. As economists have noted, the people who have benefited most from the increasing earning power of women are the men who married them. So there you have it. Even with no reason to be threatened whatsoever, men feel less for the sake of their female partner successes. Very, very interesting stuff indeed. All right, next up on tonight's show, we'll continue uh, looking at things about the mind and behavior and emotion. Anxiety is linked to a need for more personal space. Not a huge revelation. It's well known that people who are prone to be anxious uh, can get anxious in crowds or certainly in small enclosed spaces from which there is no uh, ready or obvious escape. But let's take a look at this research. It might be a good idea to back off a bit when dealing with people who suffer from anxiety, according to this study, because anxiety seems to affect the need for more personal space surrounding the body, also called peripersonal space. British researchers found that people with anxiety perceive threats as closer compared with those who are not anxious. They said their findings could be used to link defensive behavior to levels of anxiety, particularly among those with risky jobs such as firefighters and police officers. Researchers recruited 15 people ranging in age from 20 to 37 and gave them a test to rate their level of anxiety in certain situations. In addition, the researchers applied an electrical stimulus to a nerve in each participant's hand which caused them to blink. This hand blink reflex, which is not controlled by the brain, was monitored as the participants held their hand at four different distances from their face, ranging from about two inches to nearly two feet. By measuring the strength of their reflex, the investigators determined how dangerous the participants viewed each stimulus. The study was published last summer in the Journal of Neuroscience, and it revealed that those who scored higher on the anxiety test reached more dramatically to stimuli about six inches from their face compared to those who had lower anxiety scores. People who reacted strongly to the stimuli further away were classified as having a large defensive peripersonal space. Anxious people viewed threats as closer than those who were not anxious, even if the perceived threats actually were the same distance away. 
Although the brain does not trigger defensive reactions, it could control their intensity. And according to the study, this finding is the first objective measure of the size of the area surrounding the face that each individual considers at high risk and thus wants to protect through the most effective defensive motor responses. Okay, well, a somewhat uh, elegant demonstration of what seems to be pretty uh, self-evident and self-intuitive and pretty much common sense that someone who's prone to very, very anxious is going to be more likely to react fearfully to a perceived threat that is closer, uh, or that is sorry, that is further away from them, uh, as opposed to someone who's not anxious probably would not react similarly until that perceived threat was actually closer to them. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show, folks. I sincerely hope that you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed very much bringing to you. And I hope that until we get together again next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.